conflict resolution through the lens of social construction and framed as narrative mediation is the area of research and application of Dr. John Winslade. John is a counsellor educator. And with his colleague, Dr. Gerald Monk, he co-authored the chapter on narrative mediation for the Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice. And their chapter focuses on reauthoring conflict stories. This season of the Positivity Strategist podcast is a collaboration with the Taos Institute. We're focusing on the topic of constructionist practices as social innovation. My guests in this season are Taos Institute Associates, who've contributed to the SAGE Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice. So to start, John, I'm curious, and I usually ask my guests this question, or something like this question, and that is, if there was something that you could point to in your own development, in your own culture, even going back to your childhood, that steered you into this area of restoring conflict resolution, what is that story for you? It uh, is a, an approach that grew up in our part of the world, in New Zealand and Australia. Um, and that was important. It was important for the, the group of us who were um, learning to do something new and at the same time teaching ourselves how to do it. We got interested in narrative mediation out of an interest in narrative therapy. In, in particular, it was uh, an approach that, um, that had ethics and politics of, of practice front and centre rather than at the sides or, or left out altogether. And that was what, what affected me and, and was of interest to me. Um, I must say I, I learned a lot from Michael White and David Epstein, uh, who started narrative therapy. I'm inquiring into going, you know, far back into that because given the orientation of social construction that our experiences of the world are directly influenced by stories and values of our cultures, Mm -hmm. I'm just curious about, you know, you mentioned the fact that you grew up in New Zealand um, and you obviously were collaborating with colleagues in New Zealand and Australia that you mentioned, but is there something about the culture or the family that you grew up in that got you interested in this topic of conflict to start with and then shift towards this new perspective that you began to dive into? Well, first of all, I would say conflict is better thought about as, as difference because conflict suggests something which is um, bigger and more of a conflagration and more of a, and a difficult thing to deal with, whereas difference is, is, is different. The approach to, to this area of difference in New Zealand has to include Maori. New Zealand is unique in, in its emphasis on culture rather than on uh, things like race. Things like what? I'm sorry, I missed that. Like race. Race, okay. In the United States, what I found was an emphasis on 
multiculturalism and on racial politics, whereas in New Zealand it was much more focused on culture. Mm-hmm. And that was actually too much to um, the advantage of what we were trying to do. Right. And so reframing it to difference. Um, again, uh, following from Michael White, we um, um, wrote about, we've written a lot about double listening. And double listening is, I think, an improvement on, on active listening. Mm-hmm. Um, double listening hears the counter story as well as the story of conflict or difference. Um, and double listening is a, a practice that I think narrative mediators need to get um, familiar with and, and competent at. It's typical for someone who's double listening to be saying things like, so on the one hand this and on the other hand that, um, because you've got two different stories when you're saying that, at least two. Double listening is about hearing the story that is um, the official one that is given sanctioned by both parties, even if they even if they have different differences in their story, it's the official one that is given credence. At the same time, there is a, there's often a counter story, um, which they will not focus on so much, and it remains somewhat in the background. But if but a double listening can bring it forward and bring it into the foreground, if you like. What might the words be that a mediator, and I'll come back to the role of the mediator in a little bit, but what might be some of the words that would indicate that the mediator is showing that skill of double listening? It would show up in um, in utterances that are about more than one story. The, the word but is a key word. Um, the word but indicates... Uh, two stories on either side of a sen- uh, on either side of a um, an utterance, which may well be a sentence. Something like, um, "I don't want the children to be exposed to any more animosity," but on the other hand, I'm determined to um, g- give the children what they need. Mm. That would be heard as two different stories, because the word "but" is in the middle of it. What often happens in mediation is people try to um, integrate these stories into one, but in narrative mediation, we don't. We keep them um, separate and keep them um, competing with each other. So could you say a little bit more about the subject of narrative mediation? Yeah. We started with mediation because that seemed like a good starting place. But what has happened is that the field of conflict resolution, I think, has grown considerably and it's grown into lots of new areas and new forms of practice and narrative approaches to that same area are no different they've also fractured and gone into different ways so we might talk about undercover anti-bullying teams or we might talk about um, the conversations that are held with somebody when they've been suspended from school for example the, the re-entry conversations. Or we might talk about um, group work, which is based on a narrative mode. Or we might talk about it's just straight mediation in an institution which is people, um, people who are different from each other. So it has fractured and, and become more different 
there are more differences now than there were when we first started, put it that way. Mm. I mean, what do you attribute that to? I think it is a, attributed to a field that is growing. I think you're giving me a clue about, um, I wanted to know what excites you about narrative mediation as a um, and an innovation in social constructionist practices, which is the topic of the book. And I think right. you're you're referencing that now. So am I understanding that you're saying that there are many other, um, not only applications and contexts coming into being, but also ways of dealing with differences are being developed? Yes. Um, in, in fact, I've co-authored two chapters in the book. One is about um, mediation in a family mediation context, mm-hmm. and the other one is about... Um, an undercover anti-bullying team in a school. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about the um, anti-bullying practices in schools? Because I'm sure that would be of interest to a number of our listeners. Yeah. Um, what happens in an undercover anti-bullying team is that um, someone might come and talk to someone else, usually a school counsellor, about being bullied. Then the counsellor would get to talk with a group of, other, of up to six people with a mixture of cultures and genders and um, backgrounds, but it would include the two people who've been doing the worst of the bullying. Mm-hmm. So they're included in the process, but they are not, they're outnumbered they're by four to two. And then the counsellor doesn't mention who has been doing the bullying, doesn't mention until this point, until they've agreed to participate. Mm-hmm. Who is the person who um, has been bullied and is suffering at the moment? The counsellor would write down the exact words that the person said about um, what effect it was having on them. The other young people who get to listen to this, they they may or may not know who has been doing the bullying, but they um, sometimes often they do, but they can't out themselves um, because the counsellor keeps saying things like, we're just here to make this person's life better. No, we're not here to blame anybody. Mm. And then they're sent away. They have to think of five things that they will do that will change this person's experience of being in the school community. When they've thought of those five things, they're sent off to go and do them. Mm-hmm. And what is quite remarkable is the fact that the people who have been doing the bullying often, not always, but often also participate in uh, stopping the bullying. Mm. And this is a much better resolution to a a conflict situation or a bullying situation than punishment ever would be. And most of the adult responses to bullying are about um, adults being tougher on kids. Yeah. More, more active bullying the bullies than the bullies, and in our experience, this does does not work so effectively. And the, this counter practice, which is which we call undercover anti-bullying, is adhered to by a number of councillors around the place in um, New Zealand and California, in um, Scandinavia and various other places. 
And it, um, to, to my knowledge, this, this has not yet failed. It's been done um, at least 200 times without a failure. And I think that's pretty exciting. That is hugely exciting. Thank you for sharing that and making it clear. There's a mantra that I use in my organization development work where I, you know, it's all about participatory engagement, you know, involving everyone in the decision making or all those people who have some kind of stake in what might happen, right? And the expression that I use is people support what they themselves create. Mm-hmm. And there's just something so much about having ownership in the solutions that you, you'll commit to them. Well, that's an interesting um, comment because we've heard a lot of kids say about undercover anti-bullying that for them they wish they had been asked sooner mm-hmm. to be involved because they really like the idea of doing something useful for somebody else. That's Whereas mm-hmm. very often... Um, um, uh, approaches to bullying um, involve teachers to taking the, the hands, taking things out of the hands of young people and, and doing something themselves. But the idea of giving young people back the um, issues which are um, important to them, mm-hmm. um, monitoring that and keeping it ethical, um, they make a real difference to how the young people feel. We, we've done some research into the... Um, the people who finished an undercover anti-bullying team, that's, that's the most the thing that stood out the most for me in this, re, in this research mm-hmm. was the fact that they, the kids actually liked being asked and they yeah. wanted to do it again. Yes. Well, we're seeing it in um, youth movements all over the world at the moment, aren't we? That's in right. all kinds of initiatives. So it's very encouraging. I love that you see that as a, a form of innovation, um, dealing with conflict and dealing with difference and giving kids agency. You do have a story in the, one of the chapters in the book and it's set in a university context where you have two academics who are in conflict about understanding something. So there is a mediator that comes in. And so I'm just wondering how does that mediator get involved do you have to have a mediator? Can people do this, self-manage their way through this? Um, and then, you know, how does it flow? Once, What's the role of the mediator? What about the people who are seeking to resolve the issues that they have so they can come up with a better shared future for their relationship? So, you know, what might be the steps that you've experienced that work effectively? Um, well, there's a number of things you're asking. And one of them is, does, it, does there have to be a mediator? And the answer is no, there doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can successfully negotiate their um, problem issues without a, a third party being part of it, but um, sometimes they can't. Sometimes they just keep, keep get, getting um, around the circle and you get a circular situation which is just being repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. And in that case, um, sometimes having somebody else hear it will make a difference. Mm-hmm. And we, we find that um, it's useful to meet with individuals separately first. Um, Why is that? Well, it um, makes a difference to the kind of build-up of a relationship and the build-up of empathy, the build-up of understanding um, in the person who's being spoken to. Mm. Um, 
and that and it it also takes the heat out of some of the heat out of um, things that people are feeling very strongly that they can't um, bring they can't bring straight out into the open in a joint session. So yeah. the stages would be the the separate meeting with individuals, the joint session with everybody there, and then the um, the follow up. It's more than follow up, but it's um, it's where the counter stories get to live and and to grow and to take um, to be seeded and to be um, seeded in the soil of something new. And something new can grow. Yeah. Uh, one of the principles of narrative practice is that um, it's it's always a good idea to involve more people. Um, okay. And, and the people around the situation, rather than to isolate it down to the single person who is um, themselves the source of of actions and that are are problematic. So, and John, would you bring those into meetings? Yeah, well, see, the undercover anti-bullying team has six people on the team. Sure. In a restorative conference, we might have 12, 15, 20 people there. Right. Um, and um, the aim is not to isolate one person and throw darts at them, which is sometimes what happens. The aim is to work on the relationships between people um, get something to happen that is going to happen between groups of people rather than between individuals. That's great because that was a curiosity I had that um, in the examples that I read from um, some of the writing, your writings, I was mm. thinking about, because and they were tending to be more with um, individuals, but I was thinking about communities so where, and, you know, this is for me an issue of today where you have groups with conflicting ideologies or worldviews, how right. might narrative mediation heal long-standing cultural conflicts? Is, is narrative mediation tried in those kinds of more uh, larger community contexts? Before we hear John's answer, let's hear from our collaborator for this season, the Taos Institute, and the Executive Director, Dawn Dole. Taos Institute Publications has been publishing books for the past 20 years. The books offer the reader a glimpse into the theory and practice of social construction from many perspectives. Among our best sellers is the book, when Stories Clash, Addressing Conflict with Narrative Mediation by Gerald Monk and John Winslade. To see all of the Taos publications, please visit tausinstitutepublications.net. And why not check out that particular book written by my guest today, Dr. John Winslade. And now, back to our show, and let's hear John's answer to my question before we heard from Dawn. Um, well, yes, in more recent times especially. Huh? Um, when I wrote the, the first book on our narrative mediation, we were focusing much more on individuals who are in conflict with each other. Yeah. Um, and as time has gone by, um, we've become more interested in conflict situations that involve groups. Um, let me tell you one particular story. Please. There was a, a community... Um, 
a school community which in which the adults um, were in conflict and um, principal and the deputy principal of the school were both part of the responding to issues that had come up on the board and on the school board and um, in New Zealand school every school has its own board which is important to know what happened was um, there was the Maori community in New Zealand and around the school had one of their members who was suddenly lost her job and the she lost her job because the the funding that she was getting was special education funding and that when the kid went to another school the funding went with it and and she lost her job um, but she didn't know why she had lost her job she was just told that she had lost it mm-hmm. what i what i heard as a mediator we had three mediators there for that because it was a large community gathering and we, the first thing was the school, we, we had to deal with the school board being locked in the principal's office and the Maori community was outside. And um, the, um, the first thing we had to deal with was what were the, would be the conditions on which the school board would come into a meeting. And they wanted to equalise a little bit more than was the case at the moment, the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Maori community agreed to that and they agreed um, to, to wait in the school library and um, to have people come out every now and then and tell them what had been going on and they would come back with some message from the group. And um, as a result of that, we heard, we heard a number of um, accusations of racism and cultural privilege that were being um, objected to mm-hmm. because of the, the number of people involved it was a very much a, a, a group response. And funnily enough, by the way, the most interesting things happened in a break time. <laughs> this went on for about um, four <laughs> hours and the, the community sta- stayed there for that length of time because they were interested in what was going on. One of the board members was Māori and he, um, he offered a number of, of things. One of the things that he offered was um, a statement to the effect that the school board was not interested in in racism. And I, I made an introduction at that point and said, Raci- racism is a fact. It, it happens. What's more important is that the school is wanting to do something about racism. Mm. Um, and so I asked the, um, the school board what they were prepared to do. Um, to reduce racism in the school community. And the, the, when the Maori community heard that, they um, were hearing things which they wanted to hear and they were waiting to hear for a long time. And so they, um, there was still a matter of this woman's employment, but um, that had to be sorted out. Um, she made a, um, a strong, very emotional plea and the school responded by saying, they would um, employ her at the, the, the next chance they got, mm. re-employ her at the next chance mm. they got. Mm. And that in the end was, was satisfactory. Wow, that's wonderful. You know, it's something that, um, you know, it, it's all about listening or double listening or any of those other kinds of skills. But I think what you're illustrating in that story for me anyway, John, is that people want to be seen. Yeah. 
being seen is like they just want to be acknowledged, they want to be heard, they want to be appreciated, they want their story understood. That's right. We're waking up to that um, in different ways and perhaps that's some of the innovations that we can say are happening. You know, through social construction, we can actually create something new, a new, a new meaning, a new something new. Um, how do you add narrative mediation to your professional portfolio and how can you become more skilled in this? What's your recommendation to somebody who might be listening or, you know, people you know that say, hey, I'd like to be able to do that really well and be of service? We, we don't have training programs, put it that way. Um, we have done some um, workshops from time to time that have um, served that purpose. But we've been more concentrating on developing ideas rather than um, teaching people how to do it, if you like. Mm-hmm. But there are, people, there are others who are doing that. Right, and doing that kind of skills development. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess starting with social construction might be a good way to do it, understanding. That's, that is a possibility, yes. So this seems a really good time to find out how you can learn more about the ideas and the practices of social construction from one of its co-founders, Dr. Mary Gergen. The Taos Institute, a nonprofit educational organization, supports the development of social constructionist practices around the world. Our publications include World Share books that are free and downloadable. If you're in the field of education, therapy, organization and community development, healthcare, peace building and management, you'll find something of value at taosinstitute.net. Indeed, I will echo that. You'll find much of value at the taosinstitute.net. Head on over and check out all those fantastic resources. Thank you, Mary. And now, back to my conversation with Dr. John Winslade. I have two contrasting thoughts that I'd like you to complete. Okay. Now, these are vast generalizations, and each thought, I'm calling it a thought, is framed differently. So bear with me. Mm-hmm. And so the first sentence I'd like you to complete, take your time, John, is what's getting in the way of relational and collaborative practices and is perpetuating the old stories of conflict, from my perspective, is? Well, from my perspective, what's getting in the way of creating resolution for uh, as a practice is, most of all, the power of dominant discourse. Um, and I think the word discourse needs to be understood a little bit. In, and I'm talking about in the meaning that Foucault gave it, because that way you, <clears throat> you can sort out and tease out, if you like, what is part of the background discourse and what is part of people's familiar, um, familiarity with that discourse um, and what is specific and, and unique to this particular circumstance. For example, when people come into a, a family um, they often um, launch um, the marriage that will that it will end in, end in a family being created, with reference to um, Hollywood movies, with reference to magazines, with, with reference to 
fairy tales, the happily ever after story, if you like, that goes with many um, uh, children's stories. Mm-hmm. And um, all of that is are examples of, of discourse. They're not examples of reality. They're examples of discourse. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think in, in, in order to, um, to deal with that, you need to use the practice of externalizing and put it back in the culture where it belongs. And that is the secret of narrative practice. An important part of narrative practice is the elimination of blame and the, the putting back of problem issues into the culture, into the world of discourse. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So when you put it back into the world in which it belongs or to the world of discourse, that enables what? That enables you to... Yeah, you can ask about the effects of that discourse. Mm. It enables you to do that. Uh, enables, yeah, externalising conversation makes for a, um, a much more fluent and a much more fluid movement towards the alternative stories, the counter stories, the stories of cooperation, yeah. the stories of... Yeah. Um, which are, are being sidelined by the by the main story, the, the main conflict-saturated story. Right, yeah, yeah. I think you've actually answered my second thought that I wanted you to finish. Okay, and, I thought that was good. <laughs> um, because you're moving into solution. But so what I, my second one, and if, you, if um, there's something else you want to add, please go ahead. So I'm asking you to complete this sentence now, which is in contrast, and that is to amplify relational and collaborative practices to help us resolve difference and restore narratives across the world, what we can do is? Well, I would say participate in conversations with people who are interested in that. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And do you th- are you optimistic about that? Do you think this is a growing thing? Well, to be honest, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I um, when I first became en- enamoured with these ideas, I expected it to grow more quickly. Um, but uh, it, it has been attempted to be sidelined by many other mm-hmm. practices, and so um, I'm less optimistic than I used to be, if you like. Mm. Uh, but what I'm optimistic about is that there will always be counter practices. There will always be, even if we don't use narrative means to access them, there will always be unique outcomes. There will always be bits of other stories that can be put together into a into a story that serves as an alternative. Mm. A subjugated story, sometimes Michael White used to call about it. Call it. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to offer as we, we kind of wrap up our conversation? Uh, the main things are, first of all, practicing double listening. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be learned. Secondly, building and externalizing conversation about the main problem story. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, asking about the effects of that problem story. What is it doing? How is it... Um, um, getting people to act against their better judgment, for example. And um, fourthly, building a counter story out of the unique outcomes, out of the things which are being 
sideline. Mm-hmm. Um, l- let me just say one thing about that, uh, that last point. Mm-hmm. I was um, doing a mediation once between a couple, and this couple had um, um, several children. They were in the process of divorce, but they had children that they were um, wanting to take care of. While they um, were engaged in this, they, one of the children got sick and ended up in hospital. Um, the couple at that point completely dropped the conflict mm. and um, paid attention to the... They, they acted quite beautifully in, in coordination with each other about looking after the kid who was in hospital, looking after the other kids, going backwards and forwards between them and so on. Mm. And I said to them at, at this point, hey, wait a minute. Can we study that? Because they mentioned it as as in as a sideline, as a as something to mention in passing. I said to them, "Hey, wait a minute. Can we um, study that? Because it might give us an idea, give, give us some ideas for how you might go about a more um, permanent situation, which is looking after of the kids." And they said to me, they actually said, "Why do we pay? Why should we pay attention to that? It's not important." I um, explained that I thought it, was, it could be important and it actually did turn out to be important because we studied what they did at the time of the, um, the child who was sick in hospital. Mm. And that made a difference. That opened up um, a territory which we could focus on um, for resolving the other problems that they were struggling with. Mm. I'm just thinking, you know, in times of often external um, disaster, you know, whether they're fires or hurricanes or floods, um, you know, communities do come together um, because there's something bigger than right. the actual conflict or the difference or the the focus seems insignificant compared to something that's actually external to them and is happening that they together can actually resolve. Yes, I, um, I spoke with um, a guy who was teaching family therapy in China and he had taught himself narrative therapy and was bringing people over to train others um, and he was happy to get the, transla- tra- the training himself. But one of the things he said was that there was an earthquake in China and a number of groups were sent um, to that the place where the earthquake was. And when he went, he, instead of doing what many others did and um, finding experts to go with them, he went to, to the ordinary folk and the people who lived there and said to them, and well, he offered them a series of questions that, that, that they might ask rather than um, a, a series of pronouncements that they might um, adhere mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And the result of that has been that narrative therapy is, uh, and narrative mediation are, are um, both um, respected in China and are officially given um, one of the five modalities that, are, that the Chinese government will encourage, if you like. Well, that's wonderful. It is. A similar thing has happened in Australia where narrative therapy is regarded as being the um, the approach of choice for Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we are all stories. That's right. Um, 
And so it's how we bring the questions, the inquiry, and how we frame that inquiry or those questions will help us mm-hmm. um, bring out what people most value about their own histories. Right. Mm. That's, yeah. I, I agree with that. Mm. I've really enjoyed this. How about you? It's been good. It's been good to talk about things that are important, it seems. Well, I just want to let everyone know that I've had the pleasure to be speaking with Dr. John Winslade, who's currently in New Zealand. If you're interested to find out more about this work, Narrative Mediation, then go to our show notes page, which you'll find on positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to some of John's books and some of his research. Thank you for listening. Next episode, it will be our closing show for this season of collaboration with the Taos Institute. I hope you'll come back for that one.